throughout the history of the church, and even to this day, there has been much confusion about the role of the Old Testament law and how it applies to the Christian life. On the one hand, there are those to say, well, the law, the Old Testament law, is irrelevant to us. After all, aren't we saved by grace, not by the law? We're under grace, not under the law, so the law really has no place in the Christian's life today. On the other hand, there is a conflation between the law and the gospel, or what we call the law and the gospel. And in that, a to-do list of sorts is added to our understanding of what it means to be saved or how we remain saved or how we continue on in our salvation. Even though we may profess that we are saved by grace alone, there are things we add to our faith that we deem to be necessary. But here's what matters, that, that having a right understanding of the law And the gospel has great implications for our day-to-day Christian life. It is not an irrelevant matter, but one of supreme importance. Many believers are crippled by guilt. They're crippled by shame, by despair, unforgiveness, and sadness. Because they don't understand the purpose of the law and the grace offered in the gospel. You might be here today and and walking through that in your own life right now. Despair or discouragement or weariness in your Christian walk. And perhaps it is because there might be something missing in your comprehension of the law and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the right understanding of these things will actually bring us joy and peace and assurance and confidence and hope. So in our passage today, we're going to look at the purpose of the law, if any, and what purpose it might have in the life of a believer, and we're going to draw distinctions that are going to help us now flee to the gospel for comfort and hope. If you're there in 1 Timothy, we're actually going to start in verse 3, and we will read through verse 11. Hear the words of the living God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. These are the words of the Lord. Now, last week, we began to look at the exposition of this letter from Paul to Timothy. Now, Timothy, as we shared, is Paul's ministry companion. And Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus with a very specific charge and responsibility. He was to remain in Ephesus as Paul's apostolic representative because there are things that needed to have been set in order in the church. There were certain things that Timothy needed to teach on behalf of Paul so that the church would learn how to conduct itself and behave when they gathered, when they came together. What was the church supposed to do? And Paul's first instructions to Timothy here were to guard the gospel, which is what we talked about last week. He was entrusted and given this charge to confront these certain individuals who are unnamed here at this particular point because they were teaching a different doctrine. 
They were introducing a false teaching into the church, and Timothy had to guard the gospel against these men. And his charge was to tell them to cease and desist from that activity. They were teaching something, a different doctrine that deviated from apostolic teaching, from the uh, true teaching of the gospel. As we read there, they were teaching myths and endless genealogies, things that promoted speculations and led to vain discussions. We don't know exactly what those things were, but clearly they were distortions of the true gospel. In fact, we said that we really don't need to know exactly what those things were because any teaching that compromises the faith of believers and the trust of believers in the sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation is something that is to be discarded, something that needs to be avoided. Well, Paul writes again that these individuals had veered off of the straight path. He says that they desire to be teachers of the law. They're to be law teachers. But here's what he says about them. They want to be teachers of the law. They claim to have authority as teachers of the law, but they have no clue what they're talking about. They don't even understand that which they are even presenting in this particular moment. And he says they confidently assert these things as if they were experts and authorities, but they're fools. They have no idea what they're talking about. They are misguided in their understanding of the law. And they prove that because of what they were emphasizing. They weren't preaching or proclaiming or teaching the true gospel, the stewardship of God that comes by faith in Christ, the glorious gospel of our Lord to which Paul was entrusted. No, they were chasing these fanciful things here. J.N.D. Kelly in his commentary on 1 Timothy writes that these false teachers were Judaizers who concentrated on far-fetched minutia of rabbinical exegesis to the detriment of the gospel. They would read out of the law fantastical myths and ascetic prescriptions which prove that they missed the point of both the Old Testament and the gospel. Some of them were saying, hey, listen, you know, we, we're going to forbid marriage. You shouldn't even get married. God forbid. Or, you know what, you need to avoid certain foods. You have to keep the law, the dietary laws of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. And so Paul's saying here they're not promoting the true gospel, but this weird syncretistic aberration of the gospel. And for us, we need to now contemplate and ask ourselves, do we understand the law? Do we have a right understanding of the law? Do we know how to apply the law, to use the law? Or are we, like these false teachers here, misunderstanding the law and missing the point of the Old Testament and the gospel? In verse 8, Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Listen to the confidence that Paul is asserting there. We know. We know. Or rather, we should know, right? He's like saying, like, it, this should be plain. This should be understandable to every single believer that the law is good. But what does Paul mean by the law? He says it's good. But what is the law? Well, when Paul uses the law here, he's using it as a shorthand for the whole of the Mosaic law. All of the Old Testament laws and commandments and statutes comprise the law. All that was revealed to the people of God, Israel, on Mount Sinai, is the law. And the law has been classified under three particular expressions or dimensions, if you will. The first is the moral law, the one that we are most accustomed to, which are the Ten Commandments, which we read earlier in our worship service, also known as the Decalogue. Right? These are the ten sayings, the ten words, the ten commandments given to Moses on Mount Zion, etched on the tablets by the finger of God. And this portion of the law, the moral law, are laws that are perpetually binding on all of humanity, not just for Israel as a nation. They are the ethical standard that exists for all people at all times and in all 
places. The moral law is a reflection of God's holy, unchanging, and transcendent character. That means that his law, if it's a reflection of his holy, moral, unchanging, and transcendent character, then that law itself, the moral law, must also be unchanging and perpetual. The moral law is etched into every human heart, the scripture tells us. Even though, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, people suppress the knowledge of the truth. That law that's embedded in the human heart, right, is pushed down, suppressed, set aside as people want to engage uh, in their sinful and wicked activities. The moral law is the divine standard of absolute righteousness of which all of humanity will one day have to give account. That's the first dimension, the moral law. The second is the ceremonial law. Now, this had to do with everything that governed the the worship life, if you will, of the people of God. Everything that governed the system of the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and worship that took place there. This encompasses uh, circumcision, the dietary laws, all of the rites of purification, all of the feasts and other ritual practices are part of the ceremonial law. And the third dimension of the law, expression of the law, is called the civil or judicial law. This is what governed the people of God and prescribed how the people of God lived in the land that God gave to them. These are the laws that apply to theocratic Israel. Laws that governed how a, someone who offended or transgressed the law of God, how they would be judged and punished. These are the civil or judicial laws. Now, sometimes these are summarized in the Old Testament, especially in the writings attributed to Moses, as the commandments, statutes, and judgments. In a way, that is the threefold distinction or dimensions of those laws. In Deuteronomy 6.1, he writes, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules. Commandments, statutes, and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. There's the moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. Now, the ceremonial or civil laws are no longer binding since they are ceased. And they ceased with the end of theocratic Israel. And in in essence, they were abrogated with the coming of Christ. They were set aside where they are no longer in effect as they were administered and used and performed by theocratic Israel because Christ perfectly fulfilled all of the law. All of these things the scripture tells us were types and shadows of the substance, which is Christ. Now that we have Christ, we no longer have need of these. Now, while we say they're abrogated and done away with because they've been fulfilled by Christ, the principles of these particular laws are still binding. Why? Because even those things, the ceremonial and civil laws, are based on the moral law. They're based on the character and nature of God. So in our confession, we talk about the general purpose or the general equity of the law. We are to understand even those civil laws, even though they're not going to be implemented the way they were prescribed to theocratic Israel, the principles are still binding on us today. And we would do right and well to obey and follow those things. But the moral laws, they continue to be binding upon everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. All right, so we have to have that as a foundation. Right? So when we say, when he's talking about the law, he's talking about all of that. Right? We've summed up all the laws, uh, add them up in the Old Testament, we're looking at 613 laws. That's the traditional number that the rabbis talked about when they talked about the law of God. Well, Paul says the law is good. But how many Christians today actually have a good view of the law? I think most Christians, if they were honest, would say they have a pretty negative view when they think about the law. They think of it as something restrictive, something antiquated, maybe something legalistic. But when you look at the writings, when you look at the Psalms, right, the writings of David and the psalmists, when they talk about the law, they don't talk about it as something like they, that they hate. 
They don't talk about it, about it as something as if it was harsh and cruel and restrictive. No, like if you read Psalm 119, which is that love song, that love poem about God's law, you will get the impression that they loved God's law, that they saw it for what it was, this gracious gift of God to his people. Something that God did not give to any other nation that made Israel his unique and special and set apart people. Romans 7, 12, Paul writes, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is no place for the Christian to say that the law is not good because the law is good. The law is holy because it's about the nature and character of God reflected in those laws. Let's turn to what our Lord himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. In his Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he's teaching his disciples and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? Fulfill them. Everything they said concerning me, he says, I'm coming to fulfill the writings of the prophets and every command of God to his people. He says, I've come to fulfill, to complete For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus said he did not come to eliminate them, but rather to fulfill them. So he is upholding the Old Testament law as something good, something holy, something right, because it is an expression of the moral will and character of the Father. So when Jesus taught about the law, what did he do? He expounded upon it. He interpreted it. He clarified it so the people would see this is indeed what God requires. And he presses this because he says this isn't just about external conformity. This is a matter of the heart. So he took the Ten Commandments and its teaching. He says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, guess what? That's not just the external act. Because if you even look lustfully upon a woman, what is that? That's adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. But, dude, if you hate your brother, well, that's murder as well. The heart is the issue. And he said, look, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you ain't going to make it. You're going to be out of the kingdom. Well, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? These were the experts in the law. These are the ones who, who, who prided themselves in being obedient to the law and talking about the law and, and, and just, just boasting in, in their law-keeping. And he's saying, their righteousness? That's garbage. If yours doesn't go beyond that, you got problems. So let's look now here what he's saying because the law is good. Because it's God's revealed will for his creatures. But he says the law is only good if what? It's used lawfully. Some of your translations might say used properly. That means there is a lawful use of the law and there's an unlawful use of the law. There's a right use and there's a wrong use. So let's begin to kind of break this down. And this is teaching, but this is foundational for us to understand what the law is all about. Now, Martin Luther, uh, in his writings, specifically in his teachings on Galatian, he was blown away when he began to look at what the law is all about and what the law was used for. And and he prescribed two ways that the law is used. Now, Calvin took those and actually articulated a threefold use of the law, which most theologians even today say that is an appropriate way to begin to look at how the law is to be used. The first use of the law is the convicting use of the law. Now, depending on who you read up on this, they may use different terminology, but I'm using uh, Calvin's threefold prescription and the order in which he talked about them. The first use is the convicting use. And by this he wrote that the law reveals the perfect righteousness of God. You would not know everything you need to know about the character, nature, and righteousness of God apart from the law. So in the giving of the law, well, that is now made known. It is revealed. It also reveals to us his requirement for moral perfection. God is perfectly righteous, and what does he require of us? Perfect righteousness. Problem. We fall short of that. 
We're incapable of perfect righteousness. And what Calvin was writing in all of that was that, that the law was like a mirror that reflected our sinfulness. And in it, we saw the, the perfect righteousness of God and our inability to measure up to that. And all of that should drive us to misery and despair, but ultimately drive us to Christ and point us to the grace offered us in Christ Jesus. The law spells out how sinful we truly are. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How do you know something's sinful? Because the law says it's sinful, right? The law. The Jews knew the law. The Jews knew what God said was sinful. And through that knowledge of sin, now came a condemnation upon humanity. Now, sin didn't come into existence because the law said it was sinful, right? That, that has been there since the fall forward here. But the law now reveals its utter sinfulness and our utter falling short of the glory of God, the righteousness of God. That knowledge of sin leads to further rebellion. Paul writes about that in Romans 7. Now that I know that the law says do not covet, guess what I want to do? I want to covet even more. I'm going to be the king of coveting. Well, the law says thou shalt not steal. Guess what, I'm a, guess what my flesh wants to do all the more, right? We continually rebel. We increase, the law increases rebellion. The law itself has one point and one point alone, and that is to bludgeon us because we have failed to meet God's righteous requirements. The law is a hammer that pummels the self-righteous. Because as self-righteous as some people are thinking, look how amazing I am in comparison to someone else. We never measure up to the holy righteous standard that is God. And that's important. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are condemned by the law. We are judged by the law. We receive a death sentence by the law. But this should drive the soul, the soul to long for forgiveness, to long for the freedom from, from, from the bondage to the law, the judgment of the law, the curse of the law, and to flee to Christ in repentance and faith. Paul writing to the Galatians in chapter 3, 22 and 24, he writes, But the scripture imprisoned everyone, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. This is the purpose of the law. It's our schoolmaster. It's our tutor. It's our guardian. Now, being under the law with its crushing demands, right? It, it's, it's hopeless if, if that's where it ended, right? But it's there in place until the faith that comes through Christ Jesus is to be revealed. That wagging accusatory finger of the law should move us, provoke us, drive us to seek the grace offered in Christ Jesus. Well, that's the first use of the law, convicting use of the law. The second use of the law is its restraining work. The law helps to restrain lawless behavior. Especially when that law is backed by a civil code that administers punishment to proven offenders. It then becomes a deterrent to lawlessness, right? We read in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, now here's the responsibility of the governing authorities, right? They are God's agents, To do what? To punish evildoers. They wield a sword to that end. This is why laws matter, right? If criminals don't think they're going to be punished, right, then lawlessness goes undeterred. But it's a profound deterrent, right? Not not only is that law embedded in the human heart, even though mankind tries to suppress it in their unrighteousness and wickedness, but it's still there. And then when you have civil law that is also based on the moral law of God and says, if you do X, you will receive this punishment. 
The person who wants to steal will be deterred from stealing if they knew, well, if I'm caught, then I'll have to pay restitution. I will have to face jail time. Why does violence run rampant? It runs rampant where? In places that don't enforce the moral law and the civil laws that are on the books. Now, we know the law cannot change the heart. The purpose of this part of the law isn't one that is salvific. It is not one that transforms the human heart to become righteous, but its threats of punishment can restrain an evildoer. That's the second use of the law. The third use of the law is its instructive or educative purpose. Now, Calvin called this the principal use of the law, the most important use of the law. And it's this, it actually provides guidance for believers. Here's a place that matters greatly to us and why the law is important. He wrote that the third use is for those whose hearts have already been made new by the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. The law is written and engraved upon their hearts by the finger of God. That's the promise of Jeremiah, right? That God would take out our heart of stone and give us a a, a heart of flesh. Promises in Ezekiel of the new heart. All of these things that God would now embed, write, put his law in our heart. And now our hearts would actually want to and desire to obey God. Well, that part wasn't there before. That aspect of having this this earthly knowledge of the law that God put in humanity, this is far different because now we have a heart that actually wants to do it. That would rejoice in obeying God and delighting in the law of God. And he's saying that's what this use of the law. It's for these people that are quickened by the Spirit that they actually long to obey God. And that would be profitable for believers in at least two particular ways. The first is that through the law, the believer actually learns what is it that God desires. What is God's will? And also to understand it. That is profitable for us. How many of you want to know the will of God? We all should, right? Guess where you find that? In his word, in his law. That tells us God's will. God's word helps us to understand it. The second way it's profitable for us is that by frequent meditation upon it, we would actually be stirred to obedience. That we would be strengthened by the law and it also would serve to draw us back from what he says is the slippery path of transgression. Guess what? We still need the law. We still need that first use of the law. We still need that second use of the law. And we especially need this third use of the law even as believers. Because the law of God, right? We read it today, Exodus chapter 20, as God reveals to his people. And we're saying this is perpetually binding on all of humanity. That means it applies to us. So as we meditate upon that, we, we see it. All of those, even if expressed in, these, in the negative statement, right? right? You shall not. Well, we understand that to reveal something about the character of, character of God. Why should we not bear false witness against our neighbor? What does that tell us about the character of God? That God is not a man that he should lie. That God is completely truthful. Why should we not commit adultery? Because we have a God who is completely faithful. Why should we have no other gods before him, before us? Why should we worship no other gods? Because there's only one true God. Everything else is false. All of these are necessary for us. The law instructs us. Here's the great usefulness of the law, he writes. Because the believer by the Spirit already has an inward readiness to obey the law that when he or she reads it, he's laying hold not just of its precepts, but the accompanying promise of grace, which sweetens the bitterness of the law. See, as we read the law now through the lens of grace and through the lens of the gospel, that's the sting of the law, right, is lessened. The bitterness of the law with its crushing demands is now sweetened by the promise of the grace offered to us in the gospel. 
So when we read the law and meditate on it, right, it's a whole different animal, isn't it? It's a whole different understanding and experience. In this use of the law, the Christian is not to see the law like some, some wicked, rigorous taskmaster, right, who's never satisfied until we get it right, until we do everything perfectly. That's not how we're to see the law at all. But that perfection that it exhorts us to, that it points us to, that's the goal that we're striving towards. Beloved, we should be striving towards that. We should desire that. Would not the spirit of grace that indwells us then provoke us towards that kind of holiness and perfection? It looked like, should it really? Yeah. Absolutely. If God is the the image of this perfect righteousness and he has disclosed his moral will to us in his law and he's saying, this is what it looks like. Well, that's the goal. That's the goal. I don't want you to misunderstand that. We're going to clarify some of that in a moment. But this use of the law, its instructive purpose in the life of the believer, it's not meant to drive you to despair. It's not meant to drive you to be discouraged or have deeper discouragement in your faith. But to to, to drive you to flee to God's mercy in Christ. Because we don't measure up. Because we'll never do it. Even though we're striving for perfection, you and I will never do that. The law helps provide these guide rails, this track for righteous living. So we need the law. Now... He says that it's good if we use it lawfully. So there's lawful and unlawful use of the law. Let me give you some examples of some lawful uses, and then I'll give you some examples of unlawful uses of the law. Here's how we should be using the law. These are the proper uses of the law. We use the law properly when we use it to inform people of their duty to God and man. We're to take the law and use it to say, here is what God's expects of us. Here's what God has instructed us to do. Here is man's duty to God. We can use the law for that. That's a lawful use. We use the law properly when you use it to convict believers and unbelievers of their inability to keep it apart from the Spirit. Again, we're using the law and we're saying this is what God requires, but guess what? You don't measure up. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. We can't keep it apart from the Spirit renewing our heart and empowering us to obey. We use the law properly when we use it to convict the self-righteous that their law-keeping does not justify them. We are not saved by our works. Our good works are as filthy rags, the Scripture tells us. It's impossible to be justified by them. And we use the law To convince the self-righteous that that's not how you're justified. We use the law properly to help people get a sense of their sin and misery. And to see their need of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. We use the law properly when we hold it up to unbelievers. So that they will see how they have transgressed God's law. And help them see their sin and misery. To what end? To drive them to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. These are proper uses of the law, and we should be using the law this way. We use it and apply the law in our own lives, and we use it to apply it to believers and unbelievers alike in this lawful way. But here's where we kind of go wrong. Here's some unlawful uses and improper uses of the law. We use the law improperly when we pit the law against the gospel, as if the law is opposed to Christ and his gospel. We use the law improperly when we look to our law-keeping for our justification. Or when we seek acceptance before God through our law-keeping. That's an improper use of the law. We use the law improperly when we add law-keeping to our justification and our sanctification. And what do we do when we do that? We rob God of the glory that is due Him in justifying and sanctifying. It is His work and His work alone. And only possible by the Spirit. Not by keeping rules. We use the law improperly when we use it to bludgeon and discourage a broken hearted sinner. 
That's a bad thing to do. When someone is already convicted of their sin and misery, and they're in the depths of despair, that's not when we throw the law at them. That's when we point them to grace and the hope offered in the gospel. Okay? But how many times have we done that? I've been guilty of doing that. Here's what you need to do. You need to do more of this. I have been. No, you have. You're not, you need to do a little bit more of that. A little more Bible. A little more prayer. A little more attendance. No. We don't bludgeon people with the law when they're already broken. We use the law improperly when we weaponize it to use in unprofitable and unfruitful disputes. And that's kind of what these false teachers and these individuals were doing there at the church at Ephesus. So I need you to know, brothers and sisters, we don't fear the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. And we don't fear it because Christ perfectly obeyed all of its requirements for us. And that's the hope of the gospel that we have now, that he has freed us from the curse of the law. We are no longer under its condemnation, right? That glorious promise of Romans 8, chapter 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's that condemnation? That's the condemnation brought about by the law. The curse of the law. It's penalty. Now, what do we see? We see the law as something that makes Christ even more precious to us because of what he's done for us. Now, through his spirit, we have the power, we have the desire to obey from grateful hearts and to obey from grace and spirit-fueled hearts. We see how Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves So when we read the law and we see what Christ has done for us, what should that evoke? Thanksgiving, gratitude, worship, praise, and a desire to obey. Not because it justifies me, not because it sanctifies me, but out of sheer love for what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. Through his life and death, we've been freed from the law's condemnation. We've been delivered from the law of sin and death and can now walk By the law of the spirit of life. So we need a right understanding of the law. Because we are, throughout life, we're going to fall into one of two ditches. We're either going to fall in the ditch of legalism, where we think our law keeping now, where we can say, I'm saved by grace alone. But then the rest of our life, we're like looking at how we're keeping the law and the rules to see if we're still in or not. Am I doing enough for God to love me? Have I done enough? To stay in God's good graces. That's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's the law with its crushing demands. And we don't live by that. And that's legalism. How many of you came from traditions, right? That was a lot of laws. A lot of rules. I remember in the Pentecostal churches I was part of. Yeah, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ladies, you better not wear skirts, you know, that reveal any part of your legs. Don't wear mascara. That's the devil's paint. You know? Don't listen to that rock music. They made me burn so many albums that I had to repurchase later on. You know? I mean, right? We add these laws to our justification and to our sanctification. You're not saved by keeping the rules. You don't stay saved by keeping the rules. You'll not end up being saved when Jesus returns by having kept the rules. Because we already know. We really stink at that, don't we? But not him, right? He obeyed them perfectly. So that's the one ditch. And we can fall into self-righteousness, right? We start thinking, well, I'm keeping these rules, so I must be pretty good. God must think I'm pretty awesome. Or we're entering into some blessings in life, and we begin to think, well, that's because of, look how good I'm performing. Look how good I am at keeping his rules. That's legalism. The other ditch we could fall into is antinomianism. That's a fancy word that really means no law. It's a type of hyper grace where we think, right, we don't need the law anymore. I'm saved by grace. I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace alone. Well, we think the law doesn't really have this instructive effect that we've been talking about and its use uh, in our life. And it's, emphasized, it's an it's emphasis on this hyper grace apart from 
even looking at the law for any purpose. We know we're not saved by it, but we don't say that that has nothing to do with our life now. And when we emphasize this hyper-grace, what we do is rob the cross of its power. What's the reason there is even a cross? What's the reason for Christ dying for our sins? If not that you and I transgress the law of God. Over and over and over again. Christ did not die for his sins. Christ did not die for his own transgression of the law. He didn't transgress the law. He obeyed perfectly. Who did? We did. We did. To say that the law has, is, has nothing to do with this is to ignore the reality of what Christ has done for us. To rob and empty the cross of its power to save if there's nothing punitive in it. No, he was punished for our transgressions. The law prepares the way for the gospel. So if we don't get the law right, we're not going to get the gospel right. If we don't get the gospel right, it's because we have a faulty view of the law. If all we're about is the law and no gospel, what do we have? Legalism. But if it's all gospel and no understanding of the law, we end up in the ditch of antinomianism. Now, Paul, in charging Timothy to confront these false teachers of the law, he's doing it because they're misusing the law. And in misusing the law, they are leading believers down the wrong path. The law must be handled lawfully, rightly, properly. You and I have a responsibility to handle the law and use the law properly. You have to apply it properly to your life. So when you read the law of God, you don't read it as the list, the to-do list that God has given you so that you can stay in grace, so that you can be accepted by God, so that you can be loved by God, so that you can continue in the favor of God. That would be the wrong use of the law, the wrong application of the law in your life. But you read it and you go, "Ah, that's what delights God. That's God's will for my life. And out of gratitude for what he's done for me in the gospel. Of how he's forgiven me for my transgression. Out of the abundance of the grace that has overflowed into my life. I want to obey God. I desire to obey God. And I know when I have failed to do that. I can turn to Christ. I can come to him and seek grace and forgiveness. It's the right use and application. When we confront our brothers and sisters, when we encourage our brothers and sisters, you need to use the law rightly. We don't use it as a weapon. You are violating the law of God. You've transgressed, and you don't even point them to Christ and the gospel. That's a wrong use of the law. When we want to exhort our brothers to holy living, if all we do is say, God's word, here's the list. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And we don't appoint them to the grace that they have in Christ Jesus, the power that they can avail themselves of by the Spirit to actually obey God. We have misused the law of God. Let's talk briefly here about this distinction between the law and the gospel in what Paul begins to write here. Because he goes on in verse 9, understanding this, again, this should be known by believers, That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. It's not for the just, but for the lawless and and disobedient. Now, the law, again, that he has in mind here is not the ceremonial law or the civil law. Because those aren't binding anymore in believers. And he's writing to believers here now. So he's writing about the moral law. And he is, is using here the second use of the law. It's restraining effect. Because he gives us now a catalog of sins, right? The lawful and disobedient. He goes on, some are general, some are specific. But when we look at this catalog of sins, especially the last part of them, they seem to correspond mostly in order to the violations of the commandments in the second table of the law of the Ten Commandments. We'll look at that in a moment here. Now, he says here that the law is not laid down for the just, Well, who are the just? The just would be those who do right, who do righteousness, who actually obey the law, right? Those who don't break the law, those would be the the just. Law is not necessary if everyone did what was morally right. Would you need law? 
all of humanity only did whatever was right, you don't need the law here. We need laws because people suck. <laughs> we need laws because people are wicked. Their hearts are wicked and evil. We need laws because people are tempted to violate a moral boundary. And all law is designed to that end, right? To deal with those who have a natural tendency to not keep a law. So the sinner, not the saint, is the target of the law. It doesn't apply to those who have now been made righteous in Christ. He's not talking about those here now. He's talking largely about unbelievers here. The sinner, not the saints, the target of the law. We have fences. We have trespass laws. Why? Because people like to violate people's privacy, don't they? We have traffic laws because some of you drive like maniacs. Right? There's reckless drivers. We have a ton of nonsensical laws on the books, even to this day, that have been on there for a hundred years or more, and, and they're like, this stuff is, is whacked and crazy, but why? Somebody did something at a given time where others are like, yeah, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> Florida law says you, it's illegal to feed alligators. Now you're like, well, that's kind of common sense, but it happens all the time, doesn't it? People lose hands, body parts. Right? Laws are there because people continually break them. If everyone could be trusted to do the right thing and respect everyone else's rights, laws would not be necessary. So this is what Paul means here. God's laws and its prohibitions and sanctions relate to the lawless, not those who are righteous and just. So now he proceeds to illustrate this principle by giving us examples of law-breaking. And the first six he gives us, he sets in, in pairs. And these are kind of general. Lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. And when we look at these in light of the Ten Commandments, they seem to correspond with our law-breaking of our duty to God, which we call the first table of the law, which are the first four commandments. We read those today. Shall have no other God before me. Shall not make any carved image or likeness that you bow down to and to serve. You'll not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And remember to keep the Sabbath day as holy. This is the first table of the law. This is our duty to God. Right? If, if, if you're worshiping false gods, if you're taking the name of the Lord in vain, well, you're this lawless person, you're this profane individual, you're this ungodly uh, individual that has broken the law of God. The next set of sins, Paul lists, now these go from general to specific, because now he's, he's listing some specific things out that mostly correspond to this second table of the law. Verse 9 and 10, he writes about those who strike their fathers and mothers. Kind of calls to mind the fifth commandment. What is that? Honor. You're not honoring if you're striking. Okay? If you slap your dad, you've broken the commandment of God, and he may likely break your arm, right? For murderers, the sexually moral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. That's the second table of the law. This is our duty to our neighbor. Right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet any of your neighbor's stuff. Paul makes this list here now comprehensive by how he closes it out. Look, he states, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You got these? Name a transgression. Name a law that you're breaking. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and give you this blanket statement. Anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, what's the sound doctrine he's talking about? We, we talked about this last week. It's the gospel. It's the truth. It's the good deposit. It's the faith. All the other terms that he has used here. He's talking about the gospel. He calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, this is important, brothers and sisters. These sins which violate the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments are also contrary to sound doctrine. The sound doctrine of the gospel. You and I should draw from this that it is clear from this passage that the moral standards of the gospel 
do not differ from the moral standards of the law. They are one and the same. Did you catch that? The law and the gospel here, in terms of the moral requirements, do not differ. They're not opposed. They're not opposed. They're not in disagreement as to what righteous living and practice looks like for a Christian. So we don't jettison the law now that we've embraced the gospel. There's no new set of moral requirements. They're the same. But here is the distinction that we must always keep clear. The law and the gospel are not opposed to each other in the moral standards that they teach. But there's a distinction in the law and the gospel into how we are saved. As concerning salvation. Because whereas the law condemns, the gospel justifies. Whereas the law kills, the gospel gives life. The law discloses our sickness, but it doesn't have the cure. The gospel is the cure. The law says do, the gospel says done. The law places a crushing demand on us that we could never meet, but the gospel then offers us grace and mercy and comfort. Paul says the law is good, and it is, but the law cannot save. Law-keeping cannot save. But the gospel is also good, yet it can save to the uttermost. And he's saying here, this gospel tells the story of the glory of the blessed God. This glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law, in contrast to the gospel, can only bring to light the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. But the gospel reveals the righteousness of Christ on behalf of sinful men. And what does it do? It discloses this gracious gift of God in rescuing hell-bent sinners through Christ. Here is where we differ. The Protestant faith differs from so many others, right? From Roman Catholicism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. In which one has to add some measure of works to the grace that has been offered us in Christ Jesus. It's grace plus works. It's Jesus plus law keeping. In order to be saved or to remain saved. And to make it to that day where Jesus alone is not sufficient. But see, anytime you add a law To grace, it's no longer grace, is it? It's law. The law can only condemn. But only Christ can save us truly. Only Christ is our hope. So flee to Christ. The law is good. The law has its rightful use in the life of the believer. But the law can only condemn. The law can only point us and drive us to Christ. So flee to Christ. Who perfectly kept God's law for us. Cling to the hope of the gospel. Because you're justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. Christ's blood brothers and sisters. Has placed a big crimson stamp. On all of the law of God. Done. Perfectly obeyed. And his perfect obedience alone. Is the grounds of our justification. His sacrificial death secures our forgiveness. For our transgression of God's righteous law and his resurrection ensures that we will have everything he has promised us in his glorious gospel. Everything. What God demanded in his law, he has graciously provided for us in this glorious gospel. To God alone be the glory, brothers and sisters. Amen.